Hello, Grumps of the World. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 5, One Foot in the Podcast. This week, I'm joined by the pod's very first guest calling in from a, a different time zone. It's Matt from South Africa. Uh, Matt and I will be discussing the episode, Beware the Trickster on the Roof. Uh, welcome, Matt. Yeah, thank you very much. It's an honor to be joining. Thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, you're, as I said, first guest to uh, appear outside of the UK. Quite intrigued to understand how you first got into One Foot in the Grave, and uh, is it something you're brought up on? Um, a bit of background? Mm, sure. Well, uh, it's something that I came across purely by coincidence, Right. and um, I certainly never saw it broadcast on TV. I don't know if it ever was broadcast on TV in the no. 90s. Um, it may have been on like a sat- paid satellite channel or something like that, which I didn't have access to. But right. what happened was I, um, I came across a, a vi- couple of videotapes that um, had been left by extended family members at my grandparents' house. Okay. And a, a few of the tapes were British sitcoms. Um, I picked up uh, Keeping Up Appearances, yeah. which I watched first and, and, and kind of really enjoyed. And then I also had, there were two tapes of um, One Foot in the Grave. And I right. found the first tape, which was the second half of series one. So it started with, uh, I think it's our tie to Bedlam. Yeah. And then it, the, the one with the, with the, uh, where Booker is doing the art class. And then the one, obviously, yes. the return of the speckled band when he gets the, uh, the python in his suitcase. So those were the first three episodes that I saw. Of the first series, uh, yeah. That, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. And I watched them over and over. So I discovered the first videotape, which was the second half of, of series one. Right. And okay. then I later found another videotape, which was, which was the first half of series one. So I actually watched them sort of back to front. Um, but oh, for, yeah, a long time, for a long time, series one was actually all I knew because I just had these two videotapes. Um, all right, okay. So how long was then, it before you, you, know, you, vent your, you did a bit of um, digging and discovered other cassette tapes? Well, VHSs, well, sorry. Well, eventually I saw some other episodes that were later shown on TV. It must have been about 2003 or right. somewhere around there. So it's probably about uh, a good five years of only knowing Series 1. And then I, I saw a few episodes from Series 5 and 6. So I sort of had the bookends in a way. I, I never did. Yeah. Series, series 1, Series 5 and 6. And then only many or maybe five, another five years after that, I saw everything. That's brilliant. I mean, there's a bit of a recurring thing here with what I hear from other other fans and myself that it starts off with the grandparents because I guess a lot of it, I guess in the 90s when it was out, people of around 50s, 60s, in their 50s or 60s even, would have been, I feel like the core fan base mostly. And um, that's how I got into it through my grandparents. I've mentioned several times. Okay, that's that's a nice little insight. And you're obviously into your British comedies like we discussed offline. You uh there's quite a few British comedies you're into. How, where does One Foot in the Grave rate for you out of all the sitcoms you're, you're interested in? I would say that One Foot in the Grave is probably my favourite, actually. Really? Cool. Um, the other ones that are up there would be Blackadder mm. and uh, Only Fools and Horses. We've got very similar tastes. We've got similar tastes for football teams as well. Um, yes. For those interested in Manchester United. Sorry, I hope I haven't lost any listeners by saying that. Richard Wilson's a big United fan. He's a he's a big supporter, which is quite is he really? nice. He is, yeah. If anyone listens to this isn't a United fan and you happen to hate United, please don't take it out on the podcast. Keep listening. Stick stick with me. You, you can give me some stick if you like. I'll probably, probably we probably deserve it after years of success. Um, well, Victor was an Arsenal fan, wasn't he? he? He was in the show. Yeah, he went to see the UEFA Cup final. Arsenal and Arsenal versus Torino, if I remember correctly. That's right. Yeah, 
four nil. They lost with a miserable night for poor Victor. <laughs> yeah. Should we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. One foot in the grave. So what's in store this week then? Well, there's elements of the usual weirdness. Victor and Margaret get lumbered with a, a curse, as if they aren't cursed enough already in life. They seemingly like a little weekly gamble, as we'll discuss shortly, and we see more of Victor's supposed creative side, uh, shall we say, and a couple of dark moments as well uh, as the usual surrealism. So we open up with, usually, as is the case, in the Meldrew household. Victor seems in quite a good mood, doesn't he, in this opening scene? Something that we don't often see, to be fair. Can you describe what he seemed to be doing? He's got, he's got some... What's it? Actually, before we get to uh, what he's doing, because he's got like a wooden clamp out, hasn't he? Yeah, it's like one of those nifty special workbench things. I think my dad had one when I was a kid. I remember something very similar. I he do. He seems to be uh, performing some sort of a decapitation while singing a song from a Barbra Streisand musical. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, knew the what song he's humming to, but I think this opening scene lets out a roar of a laughter because the front doorbell goes. Good morning. Goodbye. (laughs) And this happens a couple of times throughout the series, but there's a couple of sweet ladies at the door with a nice big greeting, and he just shuts the door on them. Goodbye in true Victor style. I think he's done that before, hasn't he, to uh, previously in the series. I've Yeah, this is War Boys. It was yes, one it. of the episodes. Thank you for reminding me. This is why I love having guests on, because they can put me straight. These that, that, scene also, sorry, that, that scene also reminds me of a bit, because um, I think later in the episode, it's hinted that they might be Jehovah's Witnesses. It is, um, yeah. We don't really know at this stage who they are, but they just, yeah. and they, they walk off and um, they, they're quite, they take it quite well, but it's quite an interesting shot of the, Supposed outdoors. Yes, I noticed that. It's not too. It reminded me. It reminded me of Victor's uh, previous encounter with Jehovah's Witnesses in oh, series it, one. So he has a bit of a history with them. And that's probably what that could have played a part. I love the continuity in in Wolf in the Grave. It's very, very well could be that his experiences with those two police officers, who he was led to believe he was being questioned, they were actually preaching. That might be mm-hmm. fresh in his mind still, knowing Victor, because he is one to hold a grudge, isn't he? Um, yep. Yeah, but going back to, he goes straight back into, so he's carrying quite a large box he t- he's gathered from under the stairs, and it's just a huge fluffy toy. It looks dated. It looks like he probably had it as a, a child himself. I don't know. And he appears to be, like you said, he's putting the teddy bear into the clamp with his head sticking out, and Margaret walks in the kitchen washing her hands. And I don't know if she can hint that he's in a good mood or not. Margaret, Margaret comes in, and he is, for, for us, the viewer and the audience, it's just classic one in the grave he's soaring head of a teddy bear with no apparent explanation in the moment and it's just bizarre funny <laughs> did you know the just confirm the reason why he's modifying the bear the cuddly toy well he seems to be trying to blend together parts from a number of different toys to create some sort of a franken toy yeah <laughs> that's a great way to debate to say does that how margaret describes it a franken toy or she does mention something about frankenstein's monster that's it that was just your clever reference and i, I, I like that <laughs> oh, God. you're not back at this madness again i thought we agreed to get him a new one not put one together from old bits like frankenstein's monster <laughs> margaret said had rep just as she came in that apparently the dustman still haven't been that's relatively key 
that the desk yeah. still haven't been and um and she assumes that Victor's finished with all the Sunday supplements, so she's obviously chucked those out. Uh, Victor quits on the back of that comment by Margaret about the Sunday supplements. He sarcastically says, I think I've digested all the fascinating details of, of a day in the life of Echo Build. I actually don't get that reference. Do you, do you understand well, that? I looked it up, and apparently Echo Bilk is a clarinet player with a f- famous song called Stranger on the Shore. I know nothing of that. Okay. And yeah. there's, there's another reference to... Uh, a room of my own by Ken Russell. Mm. Um, Ken Russell obviously is a is a filmmaker. Filmmaker, yes. And and I don't know if David Renwick wasn't keen on him or thought he was a bit nuts or something because he says uh, I wouldn't have thought there was much to say about a padded cell. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that obviously you mentioned filmmaker. You yourself are a filmmaker. I just want to get that out there. Um, so as we go, you may well it's your main job. So like I said to you before we start recording, you may well relate to certain parts of. How this is filmed, I don't know. I'm coming at it from a very ignorant point of view. But yeah, Ken Russell, I had to, I had to, I'd heard of the name, but I had to look him up as well. Did you know who he was off the top of your head? Yeah, he's he's kind of a very sort of arty, eccentric sort of director. I've only ever seen one film of his, and it's probably the least Ken Russell film that he made. It was a the, the third part in a spy trilogy in the '60s starring Michael Caine, and the movie's called right. Billion Dollar Brain. So Margaret is a little baffled of what he what is doing he's he's not willing to fork out all that money on a, a new cuddly toy because the idea is it's for uh, a, a christening present for her nephew we won't really see the end result of this uh, modified mess which i think works because it's all left to your imagination but i don't know what i don't know why victor thinks changing the limbs of this bear will, will make any difference because he, he puts a very tiny bear's head which he's previously obviously sawn off which is tiny in, in comparison to the huge one he's got just doesn't look right. So unless I think he just wants to be creative, he wants to be busy, and he wants to save a few pennies. So it's a mixture of things, I would say. Yeah, I, I think he's very optimistic to think he's going to end up with something presentable. Mm. But he does seem he does seem to have the odd bit of uh, a few bits of uh, cuddly toys lying around the place. Yeah. There's a reference somewhere where the, the the electric meter man finds a headless teddy oh. bear in the stair cupboards. Back in Do you know what? One as That's well. a fantastic reference. I wouldn't have thought to say. I didn't think about that when I rewatched this episode. There's always things that that are quite. I said earlier, very consistent. There's lots of great con- continuity, and that's a brilliant um, throwback. Yeah, there was. It's the chap who I can't remember the actor's name. He was in Holby uh, Casualty for years. He was in Game of Thrones. He's been in hundreds of things, but off the top of my head, he was in Vicar of Dibley for one or two episodes. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. Why? Why is Victor sawing heads off? I guess he's just done this before for other distant family members, kids. <laughs> don't know. But that's why Margaret's probably a little bit irate because why can't they just... I mean, why can't she go out and buy one? I don't know. I, I did find it quite quaint that she wants to uh, send off for a, for a toy catalogue to, to get sent to them. It's obviously far removed from our days of uh, oh, yes. online shopping now. That's quite right. Well, f- for me, it used to be um, exciting to get the Argos catalogue. Is there an Argos in South Africa? Or there's equipment. No, I'm sure there's there is. Nothing, <laughs> there's nothing like Argos in South Africa that I'm aware of. Mm. But I have I have been to the UK a few times and actually spent a couple of years there. Right. Um, okay. In the mid 2000s, and I did buy a few things from Argos. So I, I know I know what it's all about. <laughs> it's like for me, it's the original Amazon. You could pretty much get almost almost anything there, and I'm glad they're still open because occasionally you do need to. Sometimes in this day and age where we're not patient enough to wait, wait for the next day delivery, we could just pop into Argos. Well, 
until very recently you couldn't of course with lockdown but um yeah a nice little reference so this catalog is stories next to the big b&q i guess mark they mentioned b&q because i think it's something to do with the fact that victor's being doing a bit of diy tried to mend a wendy house from the inside once what happened you got stuck fast and had to crawl around with it on your back like a giant turtle <laughs> which i thought was a hilarious anecdote i just, i could picture victor trying to build this wendy house i don't know who really uh, built a wendy house for um maybe there's a niece or maybe a nephew even the fact they mentioned a reference a giant turtle brings me to the in the opening credits with the tortoise turtle that walks around i thought that's quite that's a if you can call it an easter egg it's not really an easter egg but the fact they referenced the turtle i thought was quite good certainly a bit of a recurring theme always about the animals isn't it in this show yeah i liked how victor was taking the, the squeaker out and there's all sorts of mess all over the table and it just winds margaret even more so to do that at the meal table, for goodness sake. I've got to take its squeaker out. <laughs> Ultimately, all, all we know at this stage is there's a nephew's birthday present and Victor wants to save some money. Margaret is about to go out. She's got her work clothes on, so I can, obviously I can only assume she's about to head to the florists. Next scene, we're, we're, we've seen Patrick and Pippa. We haven't seen Patrick and Pippa for some time, um, who are in their garden. I think the last time we saw them was the man in the long black coat which is bizarre. Patrick and Pippa are just discussing the idea that they're actually selling their house. And I don't know how long they lived in Riverbank, but it can only be in their time zone or in their world, in their universe or whatever, a year or two, it feels like. If we're going by one series as one year, generally any fan could guess. I bet there's probably someone out there who could probably tell me roughly how long they've lived there because I'm sure dates and stuff are referenced in the show. I don't feel like they've lived there for very long and it's we can only assume they want to move or Patrick wants to move more so because of life next life next door to Victor and Margaret. From from an outsider's point of view, I just think Victor has his strange ways. I know we'll see lots of more happening in the show, which um Patrick is on the receiving end of. But to this date, can you think of anything that would make or that you, you could honestly say that Patrick is quite it's understanding why he'd want to move because I, I can't really think of anything overly apart from drinking some posh red wine that was for a Christmas present for it, or a birthday present for his his uh, father-in-law. Having to redo the front path. <laughs> mm. Not, nothing too a serious. Trick. That's nothing too serious, no. Um, they're obviously getting the garden together. So it, it sounds like they've had quite a few viewings. What time is it now? 30 seconds after the last time you asked me. You stopped getting so agitated. They won't be here for another three hours. Just pray to God they're interested this time. Because you know what's putting everyone off, don't you? So they've obviously had a few hit and misses, if you say. And they are worried that they just won't be able to sell. And, and Patrick sort of says, you know, who'd want to live next door to him? You know, sooner share a cell with Charles Manson, who's, of course, the serial killer. Yeah. It's just, I think, exaggerating, but... Patrick, he's sort of spying on Victor. You've got a teddy bear clamped in a black and decker workmate, you're gouging its eyes out with a potato peeler. Neither the time he tried to toilet train that ventriloquist dummy. Sprinkled dead flies on his cornflakes each morning. He's carrying out a caesarean section on it now with a Stanley knife. We see quite a funny view of his eye through the fence, quite visually quite funny. Well, I feel he's 
quite obsessed with Victor. He's probably more obsessed with Victor than the other way around. And he's sort of commentating on what he sees. So he's describing, obviously we know as the viewer that Victor's simply just taken the, the cuddly toy mess out in the garden because Margaret got a little bit funny with him. But from Patrick's point of view, it just looks weird. Yeah, and then, and then Pippa sees, sees him performing a caesarean section with a Stanley knife when she comes and has a look. Um, and and it, they also reference the uh, toilet training, the, ven- the ventriloquist dummy from series two. Yes, that's why, yeah. And who will buy, yeah. I, it just feels like they're a little bit parano- paranoid of him, I suppose. And pa- There's something slightly um, Hitchcock psycho-ish about that shot of the eyeball up against the little yes. crack in the, uh, in the fence. I guess that was the intention. Um, but they, they mentioned that perhaps they should drop the, the price of the house by another £5,000, which is an awful lot. Um, I think I made notes later on. I think they mentioned how much they were willing to take for the house a little bit later on into the episode. And I, yeah. and I did an inflation calculator formula just to see how much it would be today. And it's quite a lot of money, but we'll, we'll get to that. But I guess the idea of this scene is to, to simply understand that they're moving house. Uh, they've had enough of living next door to Victor and Margaret. I would have said, I would have said it's more a case of Patrick's l- led the line with that one. Pip is quite similar to Margaret, quite laid back with it all. She's not as spooked out by anything that Victor says or does. Yeah, definitely. There's a sort of a strange psychological relationship between Patrick and and Victor, where every every little thing gets magnified intensely in the way they. they it do does. Yeah, it's so frustrating because there's. You just want to explain to Patrick, it's not as weird as it seems. But we're back in the Meldrew kitchen, and Victor's collected a letter from the door. And apparently it's from a, a solicitor about an Uncle Rodney, another, an, another uncle referenced in the show. So many aunts and uncles, nephews and nieces, who we rarely see. Uncle Rodney, I think that's Margaret's side that we'll learn later on, but there's essentially... There's, it's just all about the, the will and what's been left in it. What's left to be passed on, really. Uh, they didn't really dwell on that for a while until later, do they? But no. I think the, the key part of the scene is Margaret is just staring at the... Well, she's, she's holding the large cardboard box with this newly modified bear. Well, what do you think? What do I think? I think I feel sick. <laughs> Sorry? That's not a teddy bear. That's the abominable Dr. Fibes in a fur coat. It's like the hideous product of a diseased mind. Poor child goes to bed with that at night. He'll have nightmares for the rest of his life. I think I need a hot cup of tea to steady my nerves. She looks, she's looking quite horrified. And Margaret comes up with some great lines, doesn't she? That's not, a, that's not a teddy bear. That's the abominable Dr. Fibes in a foot coat. I think I pronounced that correctly. Like a hideous product of a diseased mind. We never see it. Like I said, we don't actually see. Can you imagine what on earth it looks like? It's hard to it. imagine based on the, the reaction that it brings out of people. Yeah, I mean, yes. Redwick's done that on purpose, hasn't he? Cause... It, must, must, it must be absolutely hideous. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess Margaret's just putting herself in... In the shoes of what a child would think, but I don't think adults would be too, unless, well, unless you've had bad experiences as a child looking at cuddly toys. I, I, it seemed a little bit OTT, but nevertheless, it will play an important part later on. Doctor, sorry, the abominable 
Dr. Fibes, I think I'm pronouncing it, is a 1971 British dark comedy horror film. I've never heard of it. I don't know if you, you had or not. No. But Victor's quite bemused, isn't he? He can't really see the apparent hideous end result, as ever. He it's a bit just, like his sitcom script. Just about to say, he, he something he seemed to have quite a lot of passion in. He was quite proud of the work he did, and he got shot straight down quite cruelly by Margaret, and it's kind of happening again. But she won't be alone with her opinion. I think others will share this opinion that this whatever he's created is quite hideous. Yeah. The scene moves on a little bit where the doorbell goes for the second time. Um, Margaret goes to answer. She thinks it'll be Mr. Swaney. Uh, as a, as he said, he might call round. And it's the, um, I think that's the first time we might have seen Patrick Pippa and Mr. Swaney in the same episode. Either ever up to this point or for some time. I haven't done my, I haven't done my um, revision well, I know, on uh, Mr. Swaney and Pippa have a scene together in Who Will Buy, yeah, Buy. and that's it, isn't it? They, they don't, for as far as we're aware, they don't come into contact with each other for the rest of the whole series, which is absolutely bizarre. No, so th- at the door, it is Mr. Swaney, and he's actually visited well, North North Africa, I believe. He's got a very, very much, he's been burnt, let's say. We, he's visually very funny, um, he's just got the whites of his area of his eyes and everything else is very much red he has i didn't he he, le- he, le- he left his mother at a care home or something he was on his way to visit uh a mr blackaby in a in a nursing home that's right i tell you what i that. what i've um missed out i should have said <laughs> fantastic and this has happened to a lot of families i think now before they answer the door margaret said oh. Are we still using his mother's carrot cake as a door wedge? Oh, yes. <laughs> Hang on. Have we still got his mother's carrot cake as a door wedge? I think that's something. I'm not saying we've all done that where someone's made us, gone to the effort of making a cake and used it for that purpose, but I'm sure we've been lent things in life, not really made much use of it, but it's something that you're supposed to have around the house, maybe. And that person who's lent it to you has come round. Maybe they've lent, maybe they've not only lent, but given you an ornament or something, and they kind of expect it to be on your fireplace or whatever. In this instance, yeah, Victor just rushes to remove the, the carrot cake. I can't stand carrot cake personally, so I can, I can empathise with them. And of course, yeah, then Mr. Swaney comes in, which is great. I think in a sense, I don't think he would. I think I don't think he'd be. Um, he'd probably be hurt by that, but I don't think he'd hold a grudge. He's just a nice guy, isn't he, Mr. Swaney? Yeah, and he seems pretty thick-skinned as well. Mm, very thick-skinned. He's certainly thicker than Victor and Patrick put together, I'd say. With the carrot cake moment, there's... Um, you, do you know Jack D, the stand-up comedian? No, I don't. Well, he, he wrote a, a series called Lead Balloon about 10 years ago, which is very much like Kirby Enthusiasm, if you've seen yeah. Larry Davis. And in Lead Balloon, there's um, an episode where Jack D plays... A comedian but a failed comedian and he has a polish housekeeper who pretty much lives in with them and she often would bring things back from her home country like certain foods that he just did not like and one of them i don't i mean it might have been a cake or similar and he did the same thing he was using it as a door wedge so i feel like le blue may have in, unintentionally copied this uh this small segment anyway I think you're going to have comedies that do similar things, aren't you? It's it's, it's very minor. But yeah, you said about Mr. Swinney can't stop because he's visiting Mr. Old Mr. Blackleby Blackle- in the in the Sycamore's nursing home. And Margaret seems to know of this Mr. Blackleby, and she says, "Oh, he's not been at the wars again, is he?" Uh, and he says he's the only one in there that's alive now. But I can't quite recall what he's done with his 
dear old mother, unless she went abroad with him. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's referenced at all. No. I would have thought he she was in respite care, but apparently he's a, Mr. Blackby's the only one in that care home, unless he means apart from his mum who was there. Let's assume that's the case. Because he's very protective of his mother, isn't he? So I wouldn't have thought he'd leave her on her own. Unless she doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, uh. is it the psycho <laughs> thing you were saying? But I don't know. Yeah. They've been rehearsing in a, in a Sweeney Todd production for the, well, for, for the over 80s. I think that's what Mr. Blackaby has been doing anyway, that I think he had an accident or something and he had some sort of blood transfusion, which seems to have done the trick. Yes, it seems he's been, I think he says there was stickler surrealism and I assume mm. that Mr. Blackaby's ended up getting slashed with a, a razor or something like that and had to have I some emergency so. treatment. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, Mr. Sweeney gets involved in lots of these productions, doesn't he? And I think that's why he takes a liking to Victor because he can see that Victor is keen to get involved with the various things like this. And, um, well, ultimately, he's come around to hand over a little gift he's brought back. Morning, Mr Muldrew. <laughs> How's the world treating you? Not too bad, thank you. How are you? You have a nice time in North Africa? Lovely, thanks. <laughs> Lots of sunshine. <laughs> oh, why, I brought you back a dead scorpion. <laughs> Sorry? It's like a paperweight. It's a scorpion, a dead scorpion which he seems pleased to hand over. Bit of a novelty anyway, isn't it, huh? According to the local superstition, it's supposed to be extremely unlucky. <laughs> supposed to uh, bring down a horrible curse of evil misfortune and pestilence on whoever owns it. <laughs> if you believe such nonsense. <laughs> but he also seems pleased to say that it's supposed to have brought curse, a curse to whoever owns it, or previously, like according to local superstition supposed to be completely unlucky and he sort of laughs this off um a bit like in um episode endgame with the caravan and do you remember the episode with the caravan and they're supposed to be haunted and mr swaney sort of talks about the so-called superstition with this caravan particular caravan and there's ghost sightings and stuff and he sort of laughs it off and puts the fear of life into victor because he just doesn't seem to care and it's the same with this this scorpion you know, it depends if he's superstitious or not. He clearly isn't a superstitious person, but Victor, um, little hesitant to receive it, isn't he? Um, yeah, Sweeney's got this really sort of endearing naivety yeah. where, he, where he finds everything that could be shocking to Victor quite amusing. I mean, the way he laughs, it's, a, it's supposed to bring down a curse and pestilence on anyone who owns it. <laughs> <laughs> he and, just, um, yeah, he just does, absolutely just laughs off, doesn't he? Not, so, not really giving a thought to... The, uh, the the misery that it's about to potentially unleash on Victor's life. As if he's not had a bad luck enough, or I say bad luck, but Victor runs into some bizarre situations. So I don't feel like, from an audience perspective, it's going to make too much of a difference. But it looks pretty cool. It depends if, if it, you're into animal rights in any way. You might find it's a little bit distasteful, but it looks pretty cool. But um, the fact is, it's, it's a, a real... well according to Mr. Sweeney, a real dead scorpion. Um, so that's really his main appearance until later on, near to the end. But ultimately, yeah, it's just to hand over that, that gift, really. And it's nice to see him again, I say. It's great to have uh, Owen Brennan back. I, I, like, uh, I like the comment where he says, it'll go, and, it'll go with Victor's collection of spiders in the earring cupboard. <laughs> yeah. Now... Spiders is a bit of, um, again, that's mentioned in, so Wisdom of the Witch is the episode where Patrick is very much, 
he has a fear, a phobia of spiders, doesn't he? And Victor quite blasé about it. But yeah, they, Mr. Swaney's comment about the spiders, they seem blissfully unaware that they have any. But how does he know? Has he been rooting through their cupboards? Uh, old Mr. Oh, who was the previous tenant? Mr. Gittings. Old Mr. Gittings, who something tragic happened in the bathroom. Perhaps he used to go around and help him out and he may have one time or another seen uh, a cluster well, of spiders. In one episode or other, we see, don't we see Mr. Swaney doing some sort of a repair in Victor's house? So, under under a, the sink. Under, under the sink, yeah. yeah. So maybe he's done a similar thing in the airing cupboard. Perhaps. Yeah, I, I'd say so. Good shout, yeah. But yeah, what we could take from that scene is it's just a reference that Mr. Swaney does get out of the house. Did do we know why he went to North Africa? And is that somewhere where you do venture up to North Africa? Uh, I've I've never been to North Africa myself, and I I assume that Mr. Swaney is just looking for <laughs> some sort of a tourist opportunity, go see the pyramids or something like that. Could be. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if it was like a charity field trip abroad, like you got involved in in some kind of scheme. I wouldn't be surprised, but I think he does dwell on in a later episode. He, he there's like a doppelganger of himself, isn't there? Yeah, and he kind of does. He's he, he's quite depressed in that moment because he thinks, "What I could have been, I could have been this adventurous guy getting out there." But he's been to North Africa. I've never been to North Africa or South Africa. I'd love to delve into the psyche of these characters. It's quite relatively interesting. He's gone to, not only on holiday or. But North Africa is quite a trip around the world, isn't it? We are now with Patrick and Pippa. They're just showing a couple out. Yeah, there's a conservatory, and then they, I think they go through the conservatory to get to the garden. I didn't know they had a conservatory. It didn't look like it from the shots from Victor and Margaret's uh, garden. But I don't know if this was built after they moved in. I don't know. Not something we'll dwell on too much. But this couple have a little boy. Seems to be called Justin. It looks like the the tour of the house went quite well really and they ask about what the neighbours are like to uh, Patrick and Pippa I can't remember his exact words but he, he sort of paints him as a bit of a sort of a jolly old grandfatherly type like a positive father Christmas yeah like yes. a really jolly old soul um, sort of nervous smiles from them both I guess they've had so many near misses that they're just treading on eggshells little boy runs off and as they're about to it feels like you know, not say they're sealing the deal as such, but the little boy is curious, like young kids are. He's going around the back the back alleys, comes across the dustbins, which is why Margaret conveniently referenced that the dustbin men haven't been yet. Had they been, perhaps the teddy bear and other things would have been chucked in the uh, waste. The little boy discovers the teddy bear, so obviously. It, Margaret got her own way, chucked it away. Poor old Victor. He's only trying, isn't he? He's in the bin. And this almighty scream is let off, which, again, we don't see this um, end product, but we just see the, the point of view of the potential buyers, Patrick and Pippa, and they're obviously looking horrified. They want to know why their little boy's screaming down the uh, the whole street. And they just head off into their car and a great little moment. Oh, come on. Wave goodbye to your 60,000 quid. So in 1992, 60 grand is about 125,000 in 2019. 
very short scene. It just shows, it's just showing us the view of that where Victor has got under Patrick's skin, I suppose. They, they're not to know really that what the screaming is about, though, are they? Would yeah, you say? I don't know. I don't know if they went to investigate, but uh... yeah, I mean, I guess they would have gone round to the the back alleys because they probably would have sensed that that's where the boy ran and saw this monstrosity, and they know that Victor was sawing and carving some cuddly toy. So I guess they would work work out pretty quickly. But but you can definitely know. see the the frustration starting to build up with uh, yeah, it's with the... Patrick as opportunity after opportunity to sell the place keeps slipping through his fingers. Yeah. They're just they're so close, aren't they? That's a very short scene that is just helping the story along, really, to show that they're on a mission to sell. And yeah, another opportunity passes. We're in sort of in the street now. We don't have many scenes in there in Riverbank Street. You can see this little old lady, very stereotypical little old lady, and she's not really watching what she's doing. She's counting a wad of money, and it's very close, very a close up of her counting this money and using an elastic band to put it away. And she walks into a cyclist who's wearing a mask, which looks very much like what's going on right now. Yeah, he's definitely prepared for COVID-19 <laughs> He's few years in advance. He's very much prepared. He looks very sinister, very, very sort of cliche, baddie, what he looks like a baddie. He's not very, although it, it, even it could be, might not be his fault that he nearly ran the old lady over. He's sort of, he's dressing all, all black, yeah, the mark. why he's wearing a mask, I don't know, actually. Is it just freezing? I don't know. This lady is called Hilda Braid. Now, you might... Are you familiar with EastEnders? No. Right, it's quite a... I mean, I, I used to watch it as a boy, but it's it's a soap opera, just meaningless sort of... I don't want to say meaningless entertainment, because it is, it's quite, it is quite popular. But she starred in it for in the late 90s, early 2000s, or more early 2000s. And she played... Shane Ritchie's gran, Shane Ritchie in this country. I think you've been He's he's an actor, obviously, but he's I think he's done a bit of bit of music. But that's where I recognised her from, and she's obviously been in several things. But yeah, we're introduced to this mysterious character lady. I find it quite curious how she's so openly counting a large chunk of money. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's common in. In, in England, but it certainly wouldn't see somebody doing that here in South Africa. No, no. Is it my right in saying in South Africa is is it dangerous? More so with I don't know with gun. Is there like a gun culture? Um, there's certainly a very high crime rate in South Africa. A lot of muggings and things like that. I mean, there's plenty in this. <laughs> I guess wherever you go in the world, I think. Where Victor and Margaret live, it feels like there's probably relatively low, more petty crime than anything. A little bit dark by the old lady to be counting a wad of cash in broad daylight and not looking where she's going as she crosses the road. But we're, we're brought into the Meldrews living room. I, I don't know if it's the same day. It's obviously evening time. It looks like they're about to go out. Do you know where they're intending to go? Is it a... They're going to some sort. It's something. Uh, it's a relief. Victor's, it's like... Victor's old company, I think. It's some sort of a do. Okay, so he mentions he mentions the company that he used to work for. Well, ultimately, Victor and Margaret are waiting to be picked up by a taxi, and Margaret's doubtful that Victor even booked it. And Victor described the drippy girl as probably writing on on the phone. That is probably wrote down the wrong information. And she's more concerned about the colour of the car and the and the time. The doorbell 
goes in this instance and sort of interrupts them in their tracks. And the old lady at the door is the lady we've just seen. And she is called Mrs. Skimpson. Uh, another sort of comical name, I find. I've said this with a few guests. It's always, it's never a straightforward sort of what you call a traditional, and also a traditional British name, because they are probably British origins. But it's just, they're, they're always the sound of it. I don't know about to you, because in... I don't know. Go careful what I say, but in South Africa, there tends to be is that the, the the sounding of these names might. I don't know how they come across to you, but to me, Skimpson and Foskett and Gittins is quite silly sounding. But I don't know if that if you agree or if it's just just you take it for what it is. I always enjoy the names. I think they they always have a funny sound to them. Just yeah. like the way you pronounce them sounds mm. quite funny. And, yeah, uh, I I certainly admire the the range of names that come up throughout Very the episodes. Crazy. It's yeah. something like I, I, something that I quite enjoy because in my work sometimes I, I write scripts and come up with stories and stuff like that, and I always take great pleasure in naming characters. But I uh, I'm seldom sort of bold enough to give them as funny yeah. sounding names as as what what uh, it does in the series. Yeah, it's it's it, it works. I think Redmond probably has that very thought. It's got to sound funny. It can't sound too basic. It can't be apologies to the Smiths and the and the um, Jones out there. Class is quite common. Names Skimpson is probably not that common, but it does sound kind of scatty. I love it. Anyway, Mrs. Skimpson's at the door, and Margaret said she'd forgotten that she was coming tonight. And there's a bit of small talk. She's, I think she's she's over to. I think they're doing the, like the pools, like a, a, like a lottery. Um, because she's got like the coupons ready for them to fill out for the following week. Assuming it is the pools, are you? Yeah, she mentions that. She mentions the football pools. That's it. Um, which is something that I've often heard referenced in British sitcoms and things yeah. like that. But it's it's not something I really understand. I don't actually understand what it is. I think it it's a little bit before my time. Um, I don't know how old you are. I'm near to mid thirties, but I think the football pools used to be very very a very common thing to do on a Saturday. Like a lot of people would go down to the bookmakers and it's just a, I think you get a local rag and, and a local newspaper with whether it's horse racing or football. I think it's just, a, it's a very similar setup to, to how you can gamble today, but it was, I think I should have done a bit more research on, on pools. I, I think someone will probably gladly tell me, but um, ultimately you could do it from home if you like, because you, obviously now you can go on the internet and place a bet or whatever, do it on your phone. But, I think there's a it's quite quirky. Someone come around your house to collect your your coupons and your money. But the funny thing about this scene is this old lady. I don't know if she's just really deaf. I don't know if she's just rude or a mixture of the two. But she knows it's the very sort of person that would get under Victor's skin because she just doesn't give him more than half a second to respond to any sort of small talk questions she has. She's very very friendly and smiley and. That come, that's all part of the charm, but it's very funny to see her interrupt Victor. So, how are you? <laughs> We're just on our way out, actually. Looks all set, set to bucket down out there. Going out tonight, are you? Where is that? Somewhere nice, is it? We're going out to the checkers in Edinburgh. Somewhere nearby, is that? Thank you. And there's your coupons for next week. So, what is it? Is it a special do or what? It's my old pound they're having there. You're driving yourself there. 
No, we're going by a team of elephants via oh. the Himalayas, you know, just to pay the journey drinking, for a change. You'll be you know? much better off taking a cab, and then you can enjoy yourself, can't you? Without the worry. So, see you same time next week, then. Goodbye. Have a good time, both of you. Bye, Mrs. Kitty. And he, she just doesn't give a crap. I think she just she's just there to collect the money, isn't she? Yeah, and, and and the way she answers him is it's as if she's responding to what he's saying, but he hasn't actually said it yet. Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, she does seem a bit loopy, but she's still quite polite all the same. It's hard to hard to describe, but she exits the scene. There's not really much more said. It's just a, a nice little cute introduction to this character, and she she seems to fit perfectly for one foot in the grave. That sort of kooky uh, kookiness. She'd get on very well with Mr. Swaney. She'd probably be around Mr. Swaney's house to collect coupons and the money. She's seen to, I think she's seen to the door by Margaret. And Margaret walks back in with quite a suspect and stern kind of look. And she does start to query Victor, doesn't she, about the experience of calling the taxi firm. <laughs> Margaret asks if they've mentioned about anything about the size of the vehicle, because that's what Victor referenced earlier. And Victor's sort of quite adamant, yeah, of course, you know, of course I put the taxi. That taxi firm you rang this morning quite helpful were they but as helpful as anyone is these days why just that when you rang and asked them to send you a car they asked you what color you'd like yes god knows what they, they didn't say anything about the size of the vehicle no why <laughs> Is your idea of a minicab, is it? It was on the doorstep. <laughs> well, what are we waiting for? Why don't we both jump in and go? <laughs> a to B taxis, Victor, for God's sake. It was printed plainly enough on the front. On the other side was where I jotted down the number of that toy store next to B&Q. <laughs> have realised that they were talking about I give up I just give up I don't believe it yeah, she's got like a little matchbox toy car of a, of a, of a black taxi cab is this your idea of a mini cab she asks him very much a mini cab isn't it it's a very it's a classic mix up so Margaret left a uh, a business card by the phone, which is the, the card, I think, for the taxi company. But she'd yes. also written down the phone number for the toy shop that she was going to ring yes. to get the, the brochure. So Victor ended up ringing the wrong number and got through to the toy shop instead of the taxi company. That's right. And I feel like it's... I think in the first instance, it's probably... You can understand his mistake... But at what point on the telephone call would you surely go, oh, this isn't a taxi company? <laughs> and they sent this uh, tiny little like, matchbox car. Well, they probably cost them more to deliver it. That's why I found quite funny. But there you go. Um, but it seems like, they just, seems like they just left it there, this sort of like loose car, not in any sort of a, a box or packaging or anything like That's that. That's true. That is true. Unless seems, Margaret, seems a bit odd. Unless Margaret opened it really quickly. But yeah, it, that, that's a bit bizarre. But if Victor lets out, I don't believe it. But it's more of a... I've never heard him say his catchphrase in a calming manner before. 
Margaret at this point thinks the curse of the scorpion is working already. Uh, Victor is completely doubtful and dismisses it, which obviously at this point is comes comical timing because there's thunder and lightning and there's a brief power cut <laughs> for about a second or two and it comes back on and they're just, Mark, uh, Victor's looking bewildered and a little bit frightened, I suppose. I enjoy that little sudden dash of gothic horror with the, the sound effect and the music. Yeah. And all that type of thing. I think the BBC have got used that one sound for a lot of sitcoms. I'm sure in the Jolly Boys outing, Fools and Horses, when they're at the Villa Bella, that's the same sound effect they use when they're looking up to the high heavens of this evil-looking hotel. So in series two, Dramatic Fever, Desiree Gibson, who is the lady that they know of through drama group, who went on to do a minor acting role, she made a similar cock-up with a telephone call um, when speaking to Margaret, who she thought was in catering, was in fact, at the time, in catering. So it's quite um, quite a clever joke, quite silly, but quite clever. It probably wouldn't happen in real life, but it, it does in the Meldry household anyway. So straight away, they're in bed, and there's a bucket between them. Have we all been there at one point or another where we've had to put a bucket somewhere in our home because there's a leak? It, it definitely happened a lot in the house that I grew up in. Yeah. Used to get a lot of leaks whenever we'd have heavy rainstorms. But uh, I don't think I've ever seen a, the bucket placed in the bed before. No, I think that, that makes sense, doesn't it, with Victor and Margaret? Like people, you just wouldn't, would you? You'd probably, I don't know what you would do, actually. I I'd think you'd move the bed, wouldn't you, I suppose? Move the bed, yeah. Move the bed, put the bucket down. A bit of initiative, I suppose, but it, it looks funny. It's supposed to be there. It's ridiculous. It's definitely going to tip over in the night as well, isn't it? I mean, I, I, the first people I thought of to not fix it would be, do you remember the, the McKendrick twin brothers who come and do a bit of work in their loft attic later on? Yeah. I wonder, played by Christopher Ryan, I wonder if they would have called him out. But um, I don't think Margaret ever particularly liked them because of the pranks they played. This scene, uh, Margaret's reading the letter from the solicitor regarding her late uncle Rodney. I assume he has actually died. It's not like he's written a will whilst he's alive and he's informing her i assume she has died yeah i would assume that he would have died recently probably just before this episode mm. sort of takes place yeah margaret is just reading uh, reading off all essentially it's just a load of junk that she's been left and that she's allowed to just auction it off and keep the money um, yeah it's amusing how it's amusing how every item has some defect <laughs> or other with it well i i i sort of made a note I don't know about you, but I made a note of everything that was in this will. Um, so one willow pattern chamber pot chipped, one pair, one pair of false teeth chipped, no, cracked. Did we see um, some false teeth by Mr. Foskett oh, much later on? He leaves some false teeth, like collections, and he like... Um, yeah, it's a sort of big suitcase of them, almost, mm. a display case of That's right, teeth. yeah. Bizarre. Um, one lace anti-macasa. Anti-macasa. Macasa, ripped. Uh, one pair of hush puppies, scuffed. I, I assume those are shoes. They are. I have a pair myself. Yeah, okay. Use, useful shoes. <laughs> okay, well, you can tell me everything, I've, everything I read out. You can tell me if you've ever owned them. So, chamber pot. Never what owned if, that. No? Is that just like a large plant pot, like a clay pot? 
No, it's, it's normally like an enamel pot that goes under the bed that you relieve yourself in <laughs> during the night so that you don't have to pot. walk to the outside toilet. Yeah. Okay. For some reason, I hadn't heard of it as a chamber pot. A piss pot would have been a less more common way for me to have heard. I've owned one of those, I think. False teeth, no. Uh, one pair of hush puppies. What are hush puppies? Exactly. They're sort like of like a, like a brown suede leather shoe. Okay. One thing is still milk churn stained we we brought someone a milk churn to make butter obviously one one souvenir from Zilton chessboard probably owned a chessboard or well, is it then a she, cheese board she, yeah she, we, we assume it must be a cheese board. cheese board yeah and she's like oh that must be a misprint yes it's warped <laughs> one um uh, one china basin broken one plastic fried egg perfect condition i have um, owned a plastic fried egg before along with that the, the plastic fried egg 14 chickens, three ducks, and a cock. Um, and apparently they're real, according to Margaret. One man's bathing costume, right sleeve missing. One signed copy of Harold Hare, annual 1954. One cot, back leg, slightly damaged. One porcelain rhinoceros chipped. They'd love that. Who would? Andy and Janet, for the christening. We're right up their street. Where were we? Lot 362. One... Cot back leg slightly damaged. Well, it probably only needs a couple of nails. Even you should be able to manage that. <laughs> yes. I'll get on to that first thing in the morning. And she gets stuck in her tracks a little bit, doesn't she? Because she realises that actually the cot could be a good present uh, for the in, for the nursery of um, nephew. Yeah, and she um, describes this, this cot with the sort of wooden carvings on it. It sounds very nice. So she's like, yeah, I'll... Hmm. I'll, I'll we should we should take that yeah she wants him to she wants victor to go and collect something from the auctions which is lot 362 this cot essentially and the only thing wrong with it like we said is apparently the back leg is slightly damaged and that she says actually even you could probably manage that so she's got some faith in his craft creative side his woodwork skills carpentry skills i should say i'm curious to see victor in the bathing costume with an arm missing <laughs> i don't know if i am but <laughs> yeah everything margaret's read out there has been perfectly the mind of renwick and it? it's like everything must not only be broken or not working but it must be just a peculiar items to leave someone not like you can have this fridge freezer and some money and some of the furniture it's just literally junk isn't it um, i think the, the funniest part also is that the one thing that's in perfect condition is the plastic egg like the the most useless item of all. It's a totally totally useless. You could play pranks somehow, but yeah, it's completely useless. But ultimately, Margaret's interested in the cop, and that sounds good. We'll we'll get to that later on, um, just before they decide to turn in for the night. Have you set the alarm for half past one? Yes. To empty the bucket. Yes. <laughs> Which is very amusing because, in some cases, you might think the the bucket to the chamber pot but in this case it literally is the leak they've seemingly acquired themselves i think she says so much for the new tiles that were supposed to be put up i think they sort of snap at each other about this i don't know what tiles i think who's tiled the roof i wonder i don't know if victor was responsible for it or tried to get someone into tile yeah it's either a botched repair job or or a workman that they're waiting uh to come as usual they yeah seem to be waiting for somebody to come and do a job do you, do you think Victor's got a bit of Basil Fawlty in him where he'll get the cheap? I don't think, did you watch Fawlty Towers? Yes, yes. Yeah, so 
like Basel would get the, the Irish builder in, you know, quite sort of probably on the more offensive side to some now, but he decided to go cheap and not with Mr. Stubbs, as I think it was in that episode, the builders. Yeah, but Victor, he goes for Mr. O'Reilly. He goes for Mr. O'Reilly. And Victor would go for the McKendrick twins, who seem a little bit, we assume, not, there's no evidence they're dodgy. They're just a little, not exactly professional. So I wonder, it's, it's just a similar trait. Yeah, after, after after the uh, his comments about this roof guy later, he's clearly somebody who you can't really rely upon. No, no, that's right, that's right. And then of course Victor walks into one where he he sticks his face directly underneath the uh, the leak, and obviously he oh. gets a, a great big splash in the forehead. I mean, what does he expect? <laughs> what does he expect? And there's I like how there's very subtle slapstick moments in this because slapstick comedy isn't for everyone now especially comedy fans of the last 20 30 years but it still works i think because it's not overly done but this show is all about it's what you see it's not just the one-liners it's the surrealism isn't it plant pot in the yeah. toilet weird but we'll see more about later on won't we so the next day i assume it's the next day we're in the Meldrews liver uh, living room uh victor's watering the plants margaret comes back from work and I think she's asked if he's, had, if he's had a nice day, essentially. Very sarky response, as ever. Um, yeah, he's been up to, up to all sorts of things, turning water into wine, yeah. healing lepers, parting the Red Sea. See, but ultimately, he's been waiting nine and a half hours for this man to fix the roof. Now, if this was the next day, they'd done well to originally book someone in. You just have to wait a while for a builder to be available because they, they are often busy. Nine and a half hours. It's not the first time Victor's had to wait in for, you know, whether it's Chippy Joe, who I think it was the following day, wasn't it? The guy was a day late. It's not a new... This is just another thing Redmond highlights. You wait in all day for something, someone, a professional builder, whoever it may be. They just don't turn up. It happens to everyone, doesn't it? Um, happened to me a month ago. <laughs> what was your scenario? Uh, our Well, during our lockdown in, here in South Africa, yeah. our... Our oven, our microwave, and our kettle all stopped working, like in the space of a week. And um, did you own a, a did you own a scorpion um, paperweight by any chance that week? I, not that I know of. It might be lurking in a cupboard somewhere, but uh, I don't right. I don't know what the cause of our bad luck was. But uh, yeah, was we it resolved? To, we, yeah, we had to get somebody in. But I, I think he was supposed to come on a Monday. He didn't come on the Monday. Then he was going to come on the Tuesday, but then he phoned to say. He couldn't get the right part. Eventually, he came through on the Thursday. <laughs> right, okay. Well, yeah. Like I said, we've, we have all been there. And you, very recently, because he's got time on his hands, uh, for seven hours, there were two men outside scraping shovels across the pavement by the sounds of it. So much so, he decided to play an excerpt of this recording. You waited in for him all day. Yes, just a nine and a half hours. Fortunately, I didn't have a chance to get bored because for seven of those hours, there was two men in torn vests outside scraping shovels across the pavement. <laughs> I believe it's a new concept in street theatre. Well, I could play you some excerpts if you'd like. I thought we'd start off with this one. Symphony for shovels in A minor. <laughs> I could listen to it for hours. Rather fortunate, really, because that's how long it lasted for. So he went out of his way to record. What, I don't know why on earth he did that. Petty. Probably to prove a point to Margaret. Maybe to 
was it to sort of indirectly make Margaret feel a bit miserable so he can play it to her just to, so she can feel what he's had to go through that day while she's been working? Very strange well, he, thing to do. He calls it symphony for shovels in A minor. Mm. And I think in some circles, I don't know, that you might even be able to pass that off as music. I've heard some weird things that people True. label as music. Yeah, I mean, so if you go to an art gallery, potential. if you go to an art gallery, you can just stick a Mars bar up on the wall and it's could be lauded as genius. Yes, and I'll tell you another thing as well. I don't like the way that Mrs. Stebbing's TV aerial keeps grinning at me. <laughs> what? Whilst that's playing on in the background, um, I think there's talk of Miss, um, a, a TV aerial across the road that Victor's had enough, he's probably got enough time on his hands to get paranoid and he sees a TV aerial that he assumes is grinning at him. Like it's, it's like he's referencing it just for the audience only, just to just to give a snapshot that everything is going against him right now. And so much so a, t- a TV aerial. I think it's Mrs. Stebbings TV aerial. There's another funny name for you, Mrs. Stebbings. And whilst he's sort of moaning about that, she lets out a Margaret rant, very brief, to turn the turn off the dam, scrape sound. I can't remember the line she's using now. She says, um, <clears throat> she says uh, for God's sake, turn that thing off. It's driving me around the bloody bend. <laughs> Good impression, that. But so, I like how I like how we sort of planted this idea of the the TV aerial that's grinning at Victor, but we don't get to see what it what it we is, d- we what don't. it actually looks like. We sort of it's one, another one of those things, sort of building up an image in our mind that we may or may not get resolved later on. It definitely works better to do it that way. I think if you saw the everything from Victor, Victor's point of view, I don't think it would have half the comical effect. So it is great. Obviously, we. With the TV aerial, it's pretty different. With, with other with other instances like the um, teddy bear, never saw it. I like how with with like re- recording the you know the, the workman working. I like how Margaret challenges Victor why he does these things because I don't think other sitcoms really delve into pers- uh, character traits too much. Characters might do all sorts of strange things that aren't that important, but Margaret will challenge him on behalf of the audience. It's just a little tiny little thing I picked up. She does tend to sort of say, why the bloody are you doing that for? And I think it goes back to Victor's desire to be busy and to be doing things. And it's he's, definitely he's that. stuck around the house all the time. It's 100% that, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Um, anything else? Okay, so Margaret is, at this point, she is fed up and she's had enough and she she wants to get the dead scorpion paperweight straight to the scouts for a jumble cell that's on that evening. And she orders um, Victor to take her coat upstairs while she goes to put the spuds on. And as he goes upstairs, he's putting the coat away and the telephone rings. Uh, this is brilliant, brilliant little scene, this is. Four, two, nine, one. Mr. Meldrew? Speaking. Your I was wondering if you could just help us on a couple of points. Do you remember we all finished the video of yours? Uh, one of them Itachi long play models. Oh, it's very good, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Records great with smashing picture and everything. Only we're having a bit of trouble working out the 14 day timer. <laughs> I wondered if you still got the manual to hand at all. 
the manual, do Yeah, we can't make head or tail of it, this end. <laughs> as you can appreciate, we're out most nights breaking and entering. And we don't like to miss home and away. Don't like to miss home and away? What the bloody hell do you think I am? You steal my bit. How are you getting on with a three-piece suite, all right? Send the cushion covers over or put them through the wash for you. I must need to take that attitude. I'll take what bloody attitude I like and you can just shut off. Hello? Hello? The caller who we can hear quite well, you know, it's mic'd up quite brilliantly. It's someone called Jack. Casually says, oh, I'm the one who burgled your house a few weeks ago. And I assume that's Monday morning will be fine episode i love again i love the, the mini throwbacks you get as the series goes on like most british sitcoms it's just the, the special it's just the episode and then that's it rarely do they reference what's happened previously but i do like how this is clearly from monday morning will be fine and yeah the audacity this uh, chap who who is okay so the voice of this burglar who calls himself jack is n Rytel, who he starred in he starred in the christmas special Who's listening? This is interesting because as I look, I saw on IMDb that it's credited as N. Rytel. Mm-hmm. And then in the credits, it says, and the voice of John Chalice. Now, I had Simon on um, a few episodes ago. I think he was on Monday Morning Will Be Fine. And because N. Rytel was, I think we mentioned N. Rytel in that, played the Tramp. Dreamland, I think so, it is. Yeah, so Ed Rytel's obviously, yeah. He's, so Simon has said it was John Chalice. And I thought, don't think it is. certainly sounds like John Chalice, but it's not from what I can see, not credited to him. It's credited well, to the, as uh, in the episode. I, I watched the end credits just to check that it says in Rytel and, and it says and the voice of John Chalice. So, right. uh, so I think I, IMDb has got it wrong. Just curious to see if in John Chalice's IMDb if he's credited for it. it uh, it's not, he's not, not but but it's like on his on the Wikipedia page for John Chalice, it says one foot okay. in the grave. It certainly and sounds it's, like it's, him. And you know what I think is quite funny? Um, it sounds to me like people write it down as Jack the burglar, but it sounds to me like he says his name is Duke. I listened to it back about four or five times, and it's, it sounds like he says, it sounds Reference, like he says, my name's Duke. Referencing the Great Dane that he yes. knows with Marlene. Interesting. I would love it to be Duke, and I'd love it to be John Chalice, just for the fact that it's like a little Easter egg there. I would hope Renwick's a fan of Fools and Horses. But yeah, digressing a little there. So, all right, well, that's, let's say, oh, I don't know why I'm DP for N. Rytel then. But anyway, so the burger, the, the absolute sheer cheek of it, something that it would never happen, probably not ever happen. He has got the audacity to ring, which is very brave of him because Victor could have called the police again and said, look, I just had this call, trace it, if you can. The person has nicked all my gear a few weeks ago. Um, these are these do seem to be sort of very casual and confident burglars that they would sort of drop in for tea next door. Yeah. Uh, and, and all that sort of thing. Very complacent. Um, which presumably never get caught, not for the crime on Victor Margaret's household anyway. But he's calling because he wants to know how to work the 14-day timer on the Hitachi uh, long play model. Do you remember the days of working the timer? I used to used to set it before going on holiday. Wouldn't always work. I, rem- I remember that very well, yes. I certainly have a lot of memories of setting, setting timers, although I don't think I ever attempted the multi-day timer going away on holiday or anything like that i just thought that also in relation to john chalice's boise character he buys a, some knocked off video 
BCRs from Dell. Mm. So I would not be surprised. There are quite a few links there. Wouldn't be surprised if it's Renwick's Put Fools and Horses Easter egg there. But I might have to put it to the Facebook group. There's a couple of them out there. I'm sure someone put me straight on that. But yeah, absolute disbelief. It's funny, but it's just absolutely bonkers. What's just essentially wants to know if it's got the manual. It's just the casualness, isn't it? I think yeah, it's a really bizarre moment, but it it kind of almost it's it's a bizarre moment, but it almost sort of sums up to me what a lot of the humor of one foot in the grave is it's this perfect type of, isn't it this type of thing which is really absurd yeah um but almost makes sense but you could just never quite imagine it happening in real life yes i i, th- I think you're right there um because it, it does feel like sort of real life there's so many many references that are made that these casual annoy and uh, nuisances day to day that are quite small but they're blown up quite big and we can all relate to i suppose Poor old Victor, just absolutely. I wonder how I wonder how Margaret would have dealt with that phone call. I don't know. I feel like she would have taken as much details as she could and called the police. But so on the back of Victor's phone call, we are taken to the front of Patrick and Pippa's house, where there's a couple sort of in their late. Th- well, I think the, the lady looks late thirties. The gent looks a little older. And as they press the doorbell, it's quite an interesting angle. We don't really ever see this angle of um, Riverbank, do we? There's quite. A, we see very common scene set angles but i like how we can see the whole street basically but in this instance they press the doorbell marvelous scene with richard wilson sticking his head out just shouting yeah, out to the world you callous cold-hearted thieving bastards i'll have you straight out to this point but i see you i bloody well tear your liver out and give it to the cat you see if i don't at his wit's end by the sounds of it. He doesn't really care who's probably in earshot. As far as he's concerned, these burglars are probably quite close by. I don't know. He, he often shouts out to the to the outside world, doesn't he? But as, as he does that, it's just such bad timing once again for Patrick and Pippa, potential house buyers, who are yeah. just scared off, aren't they? These these two don't even make it through the door. No. But he has um like a coat hanger in his hand, like mimicking what like almost like animating what he do to their neck, I assume. But yeah, it's again, kind of it's kind of like a a version of a sort of cartoon where you'd see a strong man bending an iron bar that <laughs> yeah. all he's got is a very thin wire hanger. But of course it's so to the detail because he's got the hanger because he's just putting the coat back per Margaret's request. Of course, yes. to that couple is like, who's this crazy guy with a coat hanger, a metal one? threatening someone out of his window so that's quite realistic i think i would probably be scared off if i was looking around because you, you, it's not just how she's looking at you are considering the neighbors you're going to be living with it's it's not completely um i probably might have still looked around the house uh, for the very least and probably sussed out the neighbor in a different manner but i think that's not the best first impression is it no and and the the, the this this couple haven't really been introduced to patrick yet so he he sort of says uh, Mr. Tilsley, is it? And he's like, um, maybe not. And then they back off. Patrick doesn't really know this time it's because of Victor. He hasn't, I don't, I should, well, you might have heard him scream and shout out the window. But we don't see, really have a proper reaction from Patrick. Back into the Meldrew living room. Uh, Margaret is on the uh, telephone. We don't know for a short while who she's speaking to, but she's recounting a bizarre, funny story. Again, left to the imagination. And I think it links back from a story from the last episode that's about to be released by the time you hear this episode it's out beast in the cage the episode in the car bank holiday episode 
And from what I heard, the hospital fitted him with a completely new one. And now he can play snooker with it. <laughs> and, and I think it's the story in Beast in the Cage where Mrs. Warboys and uh, Margaret recount a story of someone who um, had their arm in a cast, but there was a gap between the shoulder and the hand or some, some I can't quite recount it properly. Or they just took, they just basically gave the impression that he was, his arm went missing during surgery or something bizarre. Listeners would be um, screaming at the mic saying, no, it's this. But it's something like that. I've just reviewed it a few days ago. So I think a bit more continuity is in play here. But it's still a funny, bizarre story. And to say you can play snooker with it, that's why I think it's uh, prosthetic. 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 Yeah, I think it's prosthetic she's on about, but I could be wrong. Okay, yeah, I didn't remember that. that no, it's... Uh, yeah, that it's, bit from the Beast in the Cage. I haven't watched that one for quite a while. Crazy, because I only reviewed it a few days ago, and I can't. I just remember bits of it. But it was just a, a bit of gossip that Mrs. Warboys was telling to uh, Margaret. But anyway, Margaret says there's been no bad luck since getting rid of the scorpion. Uh, in fact, they had a note through the door saying they won third prize in the women's bride tower monthly lottery. So, and then she ends the call and she says, "Bye, Mum." So we know it's her mother. I do like yeah. her interactions with her mother. A bit like Mr. Swain, it's great that we didn't really see her. Although I like to have seen her, but it's great leaving it to the imagination. I mean, she was in the house one, in one episode, but you don't didn't ever see her. So anyway, so Victor comes back in and he's he appears to have something in his hand. Do you know what what, what has he got? Well, I, I I noticed that the the audience start laughing as soon as he he comes in with that little box. So I think they, they, <laughs> they that was he got coming. that joke straight away, <laughs> and uh, he opens it up and pulls out nothing. That that good old uh, scorpion paperweight that you they try to get rid of. <laughs> How yeah, brilliant, funny. It's gone full circle, isn't it? Joking. I swear that grin and Mrs. Tebbing's TV area got bigger when it's only coming back. <laughs> now we know where they get their crappy lottery prizes from. The bloody thing's bewitched. Well, do anything, but just get rid of it before we have any more bad luck. And it um, reminds me a lot of that. Um, in, in Return of the Spickled Band when Victor keeps trying to get rid of Mrs. Warboy's hat that, that uh, oh, yes. he gave him, but it keeps coming back one way or another. And Victor, she wants him to get rid of it before, before they have any more bad luck. Well, Victor then looks out the window and references the grin on Mrs. Stebbins' aerial um, becoming bigger. He really is in full paranoid swing right now. So, she, yeah, she asks Victor just to get rid of it. He goes to the back door. They... Victor's got a bit of a disbelief look on his face. Um, we don't really see it straight away. Uh, Margaret is sort of enters the kitchen, puts down a cup of tea, and she's saying, what is it? What, what, what's, what's wrong? We, it's probably the last thing you expect to see, actually, if you've watched this for the first time. I don't know what you would have expected when you first watched this. I can't remember the first time I watched this episode. But there's a, what I assume, it looks, I assume it was a bull. Or it's a bison, yeah. isn't it? Or, well, it's, it's only got big horns. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a cot. I didn't imagine it. It said cot. You saw the list as well. One cot, back leg slightly damaged. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I wonder what China Basin was a misprint for. Chinese bison? I think this puts my little blunder with a taxi into perspective, wouldn't you say? Victor sort of rubs it in that his taxi cock-up sort of is put into perspective right now. 
um, I sort of thought of, it must have been quite relaxed rules on keeping animals back then. I think even if it was in your will, you'd have to have some sort of land big enough to um, look after them. But a, a small back garden like that. I yeah, I mean, you'd have to question the common sense, as Victor does, of the person who dropped it off there. Uh, yeah. It, does, it doesn't make sense in any, in any world whatsoever to, to just leave a, a big living cow in the, in, the, in the small garden like that. It doesn't, but ultimately, it's just one huge cock-up, great gag, and it, it was a misprint. So on the back, the back leg of this bull or bison, it's bandaged, and... It's a misprint. It was supposed to be cow, not cot. So a really unfortunate cock-up. Um, I just wondering the reason behind this title, Beware the Trickst on the Roof. Is that reference in the aerial as well as the couple of seemingly pranks played on them, but they're not really purposely done, are yeah. they? I'm I'm often interested in the titles that Renwick comes up with because lots of them have links to films or literary yeah. stories and things like that. Like a play uh, on words could, or something. Yeah, but I couldn't find any direct reference to Trickster on the Roof. But certainly there's a few roof elements in it because their their roof mm. is leaking and there's the, yeah. obviously the aerial that you referenced yeah. uh, from the house across the road. So there are a few roof elements, but uh, yeah, I don't think it relates to any particular like literary story anything like that in this case no i don't think so um lord only knows what they would have done with this uh they could have sold this bison bull and made it quite a bit of money actually there's no way they, they yeah. we know they don't keep it you can't well, just victor victor says they could just slip it in the freezer with the beef burgers <laughs> yeah well they found all we do find all sorts in their freezer don't we the dead cat Pretty, of course yeah <laughs> But another animal in, in, involved in the in the show, as ever. Well, the funny thing is, in in that episode with the frozen cat, Victor does say, that, "Well, lucky we don't have a chest freezer, because otherwise we might find a frozen mammoth." I think is what he says. So, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, that almost has come true. Very close, absolutely. Yeah, very close. I mean, um, if that wasn't bad enough, semi cruel. He leaves for Margaret in the garden on her own, and 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 it's sort of heading towards her. I'd be. But as you know, she's. I think Annette Crosby may well have been, a, you know, bricking it a little bit. There. I think I would be. I think that's going to charge me. She, um, she she definitely plays uh, fear very well in that scene. If it's not real, because she does look very intimidated by this big animal. No, that's right. Yeah. Um, Victor goes to make a phone call. But as he he's making a phone call, Mrs. Gibson sort of casually lets herself in. She does mention that uh, they need to be keep careful about keeping the front door, leaving the front door open because she's mm. able to just walk in. So who's Victor on the telephone to? Is he calling the auction auctioneers? So I, or? I, I think he's he's ringing the whatever the the lawyers that were managing the will or, or yeah, whatever. And, yeah, and he, he they call Danziger, Prosser, and Kemp, which is another one of these great company titles Brilliant. that uh, that uh, gets what? thrown into the. Uh, series that's well spotted i i couldn't remember yeah that's brilliant that's and I'd, and i um i i tried to see if there was any significance to those names danziger prosser and kemp i bet there is and uh and i found that there was a there was a, a person in world war one called howard kemp prosser who developed a technique for treating shell shock patients by putting them in a bright yellow room with a blue roof. Right. And Kurt Danziger was an academic who focused his work on psychology. And in fact, he was from my 
alma mater, the University of Cape Town. Right. Okay. So there's the roof. So, link. so I, I wonder if I wonder if those two names are sort of linked yeah. together because they're both sort of psychologically related in their that's very good i don't know if those both those things were sort of on renwick's mind when he came up with the name i'm just loving the fact you went to the trouble of looking it up and i'm very grateful because that's very interesting throughout my the podcast there's been just episode names i've just speculated what could the hell could this mean some some somebody usually tweets or sends me sends me a message to explain which is the beauty of um having knowledgeable fans on the show so so anyway mrs skimpson she has no regard for the fact he's on the telephone so how's everything with you this week all right no we've got a car in the back garden mrs oh, skimpson which i'm fancy. sure you appreciate is not all right here, by any stretch of the imagination i'll help myself shall i and she is yeah quite ironic at this stage that she sort of says you've got to be careful what who's about these days because obviously she just mm-hmm. let herself in and she's just come to collect the money for the pools and as ever, she's just interrupting everything he says. And Victor's got no time, but she's blissfully unaware. Again, whether she's hard of hearing or she's just, she knows Victor too well to care. Um, it's very funny. It's <laughs> the audience like it. Just every time, every time she asks a question, she's in, almost interrupting her own sentence. Well, I think at one point he says, "We just got like a, we've got a cow in the backyard or something," and she, and she says something like, "Oh, no, oh, lovely," and then just carries on. Yeah, with what she's what she's saying. I think I thought he might have said I'm just about to go murder someone. I think there's something really sarcastic and dark, but she clearly doesn't care. He knows they know each other well enough to be um, relatively disrespectful to one another anyway. But she she's left. She's got the money. She She's very curious by the uh, scorpion. Oh, that's nice. Never seen anything like that before. It's very unusual. Right, you can have it. It's yours. Oh, are you sure, Mr. Melbourne? What is it? Some kind of paperweight, is it? It's very heavy. No, it's an evil talisman, actually, that brings a curse of bad luck and horrible misfortune to anyone who owns it, actually. I might give it to myself. And she's like, oh, that's nice. She's loving it, isn't she? Yeah, almost. How do I almost forget that moment? I was ready to move on then. Yeah, that's very key, isn't it? She. It's an opportunity for Victor. It's quite an easy way out for him. Yeah, not only is he going to get rid of this cursed um, item, it's to give it to someone who's sort of a little bit annoying. Um, yeah. And again, but um, yeah, yeah, she's very. She's certainly really chuffed when when Victor gives it to her. She's. she's I think she says uh, her son would like it. He's into all that sort of thing. <laughs> Ultimately, it's quite um, a key moment in the show because yeah, he's handed over the cursed object. So outside in the street, again, she's casually just counting all her money. I don't, I don't know why they need to count it all. Um, she's just wrapping it up, essentially, with the elastic band. She could have done that on Victor's doorstep. But she's a lady on the move, very independent. And, it, yeah, it looks – it's quite dark, isn't it? She goes – it's that classic shot of her walk of, – of an old person walking down an alley, and it's sort of – you know that's not the thing to do for most of us, let alone – somebody elderly it, the camera likes to show the fact that she gets the object back out of her bag just so she's inspecting it and then she heads off into the what looks like the bushes taking a yeah, it's like a little out. path that goes through the bushes mm. yes and she's and kind the of, music gets more ominous as she as she enters the yeah the little pathway she comes into contact with i assume this, this the same cyclist with the um mask on and he gets out a flick knife and there's a, a scuffle 
and you see just their feet really that sort of movement and the, the dropping of the coupon um booklet hideous really uh, that's it's not a long scene but unfortunately she's been attacked yeah it's a dark little moment that it's a dark little moment um we're brought um straight into more of a calming environment patrick and pippa's house i think this is the third couple we see um that they've shown around this time we're actually in their house in their open their their plan their, their living plan looks a lot more modern um to that of victor margaret's shown the couple around and we, we suddenly hear a huge loud bang and crash <laughs> And uh, they look around, and of course we see the the cot. Sorry, the cow. It's made its way into the conservatory. That's how we know it's a conservatory because obviously we have a clear view of it. Apparently, that that was very difficult to film. The, I can imagine. Would that have been filmed like on a location or in? I'm sure um, they couldn't have brought a cow into the studio. Could I th they? I think it was in the studio. I was reading Richard Weber's One Foot in the Grave story. They had the cow in the actual studio. I know that sounds bizarre, but they had a, a very sh short amount of time to film that scene because they had to, have to do many different takes. I, I once made a, a whole film that was centered around an animal and it was a, a very tricky project. What's and that? in fact, we, the original script we wrote, we started out with the, the main animal was going to be a cow, but just the difficulty oh. of filming with a cow was, yes. was going to be too much. So we changed it to a goat, uh, which oh, really? was a very good choice. <laughs> I guess it's just dawned on me that the three couples we've seen with each incident that's happened, it's got bigger and bigger. So it started off with a, a, a scream by a kid who's seen something he doesn't like in a bin. Then it ups a level with the Victor screeching out of the window with the metal um, coat hanger. And then it's gone up a huge notch to the fact that you look around someone's house and the, the neighbours, it's not just a neighbour's pet, is it? It's a huge, huge bison cow whatever it is broken into the uh probably very expensive conservatory that you're not going to want to re replace if you move in no and of course patrick is as he's sort of showing off the features of the house and he's like and it comes with the mad cow in the conservatory <laughs> <laughs> that's only going to rile patrick up even more in it that's just going to dent the relationship further because there's times where they probably could have made up really like the man in the long i think it's the, the, the man in the long black coat where you know, Victor and Margaret took him to the hospital to see yeah. Pippa in hospital. He just lost a baby and had been involved in a crash. And they were writing sarcastic, sticky notes to one another. Well, Patrick was to Victor, and it kind of stopped and said, thank you. And you th obviously more has happened since then, but that this is certainly going to make him, the hatred's going to build up a little bit more. The uh, I don't want to say you ever hated Victor. He just found him incredibly weird and annoying. Um, certainly um if if he's ever gonna have a good reason to be really upset with victor yeah. a, a cow trashing your property is about as yeah about as bad a thing as an as your neighbor can do really we talk about like all, all the things that victor indirectly does to patrick in his life and it's almost never his fault obviously victor's got to take the blame but he wasn't to know um a member a solicitor has organized this delivery this type of delivery, you know, it's, it's obviously not Patrick and Pippa's problem. Well, it is their problem as well, but I don't think that, I don't know if you can blame Victor or could they have sorted out sooner? I mean, this, they probably only found out in real time minutes ago. I don't know. Depends yeah. It all happens. It all happens really quickly. Yeah. It's, so it's, but of course, um, in, in Victor's life, those sort of sequence of events that lead to the absurd occurrence are 
They just yeah. stack up on each other one after the other. That's and right. It, it, it all just gets out of control very quickly. That's a huge bill, though, for Victor and Margaret to play to play to pay because, I mean, if Patrick Pippen got home insurance, I'm sure it's covered. But there's a large excess amount to be paid there to get that fixed. Um, that that ends that scene there quite abruptly. They're probably not going to sell that. Well, we know they're not going to sell it for some time. They do move house eventually. But so it's not meant to be for poor Patrick and Pippa. We've, we've brought it back into this, lots of street filming this time. I mean, they're very short scenes, but it's very it's, it's focused on the, in the, the main living area um, of the street. It's a dead body being carted off by the ambulance people with some of the residents sort of gawping with police questioning residents. And Victor and Margaret obviously join in as well. And it's, you know, we, we are led to believe that poor Mrs. Skimpson has, she's had it. Victor, Mar- Victor is dwelling a little bit because he knows he's handed the bad luck charm to her you know, moments ago. And Mr. Sweeney's also there, isn't he? He's kind of yeah. falsely leading them down a path, isn't he, about what's happened? Yeah, he's doing very well at misdirecting them. I mean, Very he, well, yeah. Uh, he even, the, even the way he says his lines, you'd, you'd think he was in mourning for this, for this mm. old woman. I presume he's not in mourning for the, the, the thug who, who's got... Well, no, <laughs> you know, it. taken out by this thing. So yeah, so Mr. Sweeney, yeah, like you said, misdirection says it was a mugger with a flick knife, and he just leapt out in front of her in the alley. He's obviously proceeds to have some shock from Victor and Margaret, and obviously, yeah, like I said, they think it's their fault due to the handing of the scorpion. And then that's where Mr. Sweeney says, "That's luck for you." You see some blood on the uh, steps as well. And, and funny enough, when, when I rewatched this episode uh, a number of times over the years somehow every time I always forget how the scene resolves itself. I always get taken in by this bit of misdirection. It's like, it's oh, like really? my memory of what actually happened seems to vanish every time. It's like, I, I always sort of feel this like sad feeling every time I, I see the, the shots of the body being put in the mm. ambulance and the blood and it's like, and then every time it almost takes me by surprise. Oh God. She's only just been out of our house not, not long before. Give her that scorpion. I know. That's luck for you. God knows what she'd have done without it. Hey, Mrs. Gimson. <laughs> it was the first thing that came to hand. I didn't even think about it. I just flashed out. Wallop. I caught him hard on the right temple and he went out like a light. <laughs> Deadly weapon, this, Mr. Meldrew, in the wrong hands. Yeah, uh, it's, I watch it when, when the reveal actually happens. It's, it's, a, it's a funny and relieving reveal because, of course, Mrs. Skimpson sort of still got a big smile on her face and she's quite proud of, you know, well, so you should be. She's just. Um, escaped a very close call. Ultimately, she she shows the dead scorpion paperweight and just described how she clumped it around the head. Must have been a hell of a smash to the temple. To yeah. I mean, this list mugger, presumably in his twenties, um, she's done very well because she looks sort of mid seventies. So yeah, kudos to Mrs. Skimpson. Misdirection perfection. Because yeah, yeah. We, we we're all drawn into it, aren't we? Because. One for the Grave is a dark and surreal comedy. I wouldn't be surprised if they just wrote it so she did die. So that's why I think it has us fooled. So 
yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliantly, brilliantly written. Yeah, and I like how she holds it up and says, "A deadly weapon, this, Mister Meldrew, in the wrong hands." <laughs> I know it's it's hilarious, and I think also it's just funny how she's still all perky, isn't she? She's like how she was from the first couple of scenes we saw her. Yeah, it's like nothing affects her. Yes, um, even when even when she's having a conversation with somebody, nothing the other person says ever affects what she's <laughs> going to say next. This is right. That's right, and it's funny how the, the bad luck was not transferred to her so she actually had the good luck and it's just poor old, typical of the Meldrews that they would they didn't really see, receive anything good out of it but someone else it was obviously in better hands wasn't it and Mrs Swaney said there must be someone up there looking looking after us and Victor sort of agrees and then can see that Patrick is heading his way in his general direction and he sort of says, oh yeah well for some of us anyway God only knows what damage you'll do to Victor. I don't think Patrick is the violent type, although Patrick well, did he, use a machine gun once. <laughs> I was just I was just gonna say at least he's not armed this time. No, that's true. That could be that is very very psychotic of Patrick, considering it was over. I didn't think it warranted a machine gun firing towards Victor's general direction, but it was just to give him a huge bill, I suppose. Over some wine. Anyway, so yeah that brings us to the end of the episode. But as the episode, as the camera pans away we see a, a nice reveal of the smiling TV aerial. Stebbing's TV aerial. Mrs. Stebbing's TV aerial. But I think the, the, the TV aerial grin reminded me of Mrs. Skimpson's sort of constant grin throughout the episode. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, very, quite a clever episode. So it was one for gags, wasn't it? You know, visual gags with the um, misprint, you know, resulting in them in receiving a bull. Um, yeah, good, good mix of light and dark as well. Yeah. And, um, some very bizarre images, in particular the uh, the cow in the backyard. Yeah, and also I think the carrot cake wedge of the door. You've got the mystery of what what Patrick and Pippa see Victor do to the teddy bear, and that obviously causes some distress to the boy. The the, the close calls by the um, to unselling the house. Some the yeah the little matchstick car box toy. Yeah, just bizarre. Um, and the burglar calling to say, you know, could you help me work the very item I've nicked from you? Uh, I'd say that's my favourite moment in the episode is the, is the burglar phone call. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's very, very, all very casual. A little bit of further research, is, it may be commonly known to yourself and other listeners, but Renwick felt the cow intro wasn't such a good idea. I think um, he felt like, for some reason, with the, the back leg bandaged up, it would go over viewers' heads. I thought, how can it? It's an obvious joke. Back back leg slightly damaged i don't know if he thinks the audience is a bit dim but according to the one from the grave story he didn't think it was a good idea because he, he thought the joke might go over some people's heads but i don't know i suppose it's a it's always a worry for somebody writing something like that you, you never yeah. quite know whether the joke is going to land as well as you hope it will true true what else the cow was called dawn Apparently, and uh, they had lots of production challenges with the cow. So basically, they brought the they transported the cow and its calf, which I guess they had to really because I guess it would be quite distressed without it. But they heard the, the cow Dawn heard her cow her calf sorry bailing in the background, and it therefore got a bit distressed. Essentially, charged at the the gates of like where they filmed. Essentially, pinned up the, one of the prop ma- one of the prop masters against the fence where obviously one of the many challenges they faced so that would have been probably a little bit scary for the um prop master but it, it visually seems funny but actually quite distressing for the poor cow because it just wants to see his baby doesn't it the idea of the tv aerial was uh visualized 
I think Renwick was sort of sat in his back garden one day and he literally saw an aerial that looked, not obviously how we saw it, but I think he just literally gathered the idea on the spot that it looked like a smiley face. Um, so he thought he'd introduce that. Apparently, Renwick was known to often change ideas and plans at the very last minute and cause many headaches for production, the production team. Uh, but yeah, it's a very good episode for me. Classic one for, like you said, plenty of surrealism, sinister, loads of comedy. And Mrs. Skimpson was a great one-off character. I wouldn't mind seeing her again, but we don't. Maybe she's mentioned again, I don't know. I don't recall any other mention of her, but yeah, she was, She would have been a, a nice little recurring character a couple of times. Yeah, but yeah as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, elements like the, the burglar phoning and the cow yeah. in the garden, that, that juxtaposition of real-world situations in a bizarre setting just sums up the, the style of humour that, that One Foot in the Grave is built on. There's not really any other comedy like it, is there, really? Like, we have that much surrealism and that element of darkness is brilliant. That wraps it quite nicely, really, and I th- it might move us relatively smoothly into the Meldrew Moan. Oh, I do not believe! Will you look at this, bastards? Can you believe the nerve of this? I'll skin their ruddy heights for them! <laughs> So have you got a mailroom moan that you wanted to talk about? I feel like there's a few things that, that I could moan about at the moment, but I think one of the main ones is, is a peculiarly South African thing, which we call load shedding here, yes, which is okay. basically when, when the electricity company that supplies power to the whole of South Africa uh, switches your electricity off for two hours at a time in order to uh, save on the load because they, they can't deal with the, the, uh, the, the electricity load of the whole country country at the moment due to all sorts of bad maintenance and stuff like that so it's it's something we've been suffering from for nearly 15 years now and, and it sort of comes and goes every now and again and we're in the middle of another series of load shedding at the moment so it sort of pushes your whole life around you have to sort of work around these two and a half hour mm. slots where you're without electricity during the day or night yeah i mean i i gave a more organic reaction to that offline when you told me that a few days ago so i was like oh my god like don't know how lucky we've got it really um and i mean it's, it could be worse but i think a couple of hours a day every day and that's been like that for like you said what 15 years or so um, yeah that's, luckily that's, it's, it's workable it's not I mean, if it was it just two hours a day is it it depends some uh, it depends on how bad the uh, the maintenance problems are sometimes we don't have any load shedding for months at a time oh really sometimes okay. sometimes we end up in a situation where we have three or four two and a half hour outages per day. So sometimes so do you have like, like that. running generators or stuff like fridge freezers and stuff go off, obviously. Well, lots of businesses rely on generators to actually keep running, but at home we just have sort of deal with the, the power going off from time okay. to time. Well, that is a very valid moan. I would say so far this series, like all of the one for the podcast, yours is the most valid moan by far. I mean, obviously, yeah, if it's a couple of hours here or there, it's a bit easy for, for, for me to say, oh, that doesn't sound too bad, but I think that would get on a lot of nerves. And I, I assume you've got used to it, but when I, when I was arranging this podcast with you, we had to, I had to, you had to sort of like explain to me that, well, I could come on this time, but that particular time it might, I might not actually have any power. So it was quite, um, yeah, I, I sort of did generally empathise with your situation. There. I thought that's quite, I mean, you're an, you, you know, you, you work in the film business. So if you're doing a lot of editing at home, I guess you would you would plan around it, but if you were to lose some work, or if you're doing things online, 
I guess you can do stuff offline, can't you? But with with a laptop with power. But if it was to break out on you during editing, you'd lost uh, your work. That'd be pretty. pretty yeah, l- luckily annoying. we we generally know when it's going to happen in advance. But I was yes. still try- this, this afternoon. I was trying to do some work like up until the last minute, but yep. then the power uh, went off before I'd finished, unfortunately. Uh, okay. Well, I think that's. Um, I can't really top that moan. I can't really. <laughs> I, I sometimes, and I guess it's very uh, lucky, I can't really find too much to moan about that isn't, I, I don't delve into the politics and I don't, almost always something's indirectly related to coronavirus matters. So I can't think of anything myself this week, but um, a great little moan. So thank you, Matt. We have, um, we have another good one here in South Africa at the moment because the uh, the sale of alcohol has also been banned no um during the lockdown so 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 lots of beer drinkers and wine drinkers and and that sort of thing are very frustrated at the moment (laughs) why why is it banned i feel like it's a stupid question but why have they why they banned that um just to relieve the strain on the hospitals for people who arrive with alcohol related injuries and stuff like that so actually they banned alcohol and then unbanned it for six weeks and yeah, there was such, such an increase on strain on the hospitals that they then decided to ban it again. Yeah, it's almost like banning it is a short, very short-term measure. But you know, when you sort of lift those restrictions, people are going to go crazy, aren't they? And then it's just going to have an overload of drunk patients, or yeah, you know, they're actually um, paralytics, should I say? Yeah. Well, and, but unfortunately, it increases the unemployment problem as well because so many businesses are going going out yeah. of out of operation are things quite calm relatively speaking in terms of is are things getting back to normal in south africa are businesses operating uh, right now Um, generally like non-essential businesses most businesses are operating now apart from obviously things like that are related to the alcohol industry yeah um so pubs and restaurants are shut and stuff uh, restaurants are sort of open for a limited number of people but they can't serve alcohol they can't serve alcohol yeah Okay. Um, stuff like that, and but but the numbers of cases are still very much on the rise. Yeah. You can't buy turnip wine, Polish sherry, anything like that. Like Victor might <laughs> get his hands on, right? Okay, that's unfortunate. No, nothing at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for those interested in getting into film or who are in the film industry themselves, uh, Matt, your website is at thfilms.net, so it might be worth that's, having. A, that's it. Yeah. Have a little, have a little look at some of his work. I've had a. I have a, a skim through. I was obviously on your Twitter. So your Twitter handles at G O L Rush 007. Gold is that, is that Gold Rush? But Gold Rush. Gold Rush, yeah. Yeah. G O L Rush 007. You're a big Bond fan as well, aren't you? I am, yes. Yeah. So that's your Twitter. But yeah, your website's very, very, prof- very professional. I can see all the guys. Oh, thank you. Guys and girls. And it's, um, I guess anything, it's got, it's got like a CV of things you, you guys have done. And um, you're a writer as well, are you? I do a bit of writing. Um, mostly I specialize as an editor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, writing is part of what I do as well. Oh, brilliant. Well, good luck to you in any upcoming projects. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, okay. thank you for joining me, Matt. And um, have you got any idea what next episode you might randomly watch? Or is it just as and when, whatever's on? I I, I just tend to to go through the box set and just pick a random episode that I that I feel like watching, yeah. Have you got a, pref- a preference to series? Do you prefer the earlier one for the later, or is it? Well, 
I don't really have a strong preference, but because series one was all I knew for a very long time, it's the one that I have the most attachment to. So it's, it's, it's okay. probably the one I'm, the, the series that I'm most fond of. So it's interesting for me to hear from your perspective where you often talk about how One Foot in the Grave sort of got better as it went along. And I certainly wouldn't disagree with you, but series one is definitely yeah. my favorite. Well, and, and it's a good reason for that. And that's the very, for me, like, Specifically, I think Execution of Song and Rearranging the Dust, Rearranging the Dust are two specific favourites of mine and One Foot Nail Guard. So when I watch those in particular, it does that kind of takes me to a, a previous happy place, maybe with the grandparents watching it, because they, they had some of the videos. They would watch it when it was on the BBC, and I eventually brought them the DVD box set. I don't think they ever really bothered with DVDs. They were so behind the times, but they'd certainly seen them all several times on when they were aired anyway in repeats. But those particular episodes they had on video, so that I've got quite a connection with those, um, yeah, for those episodes. But yeah, it's fantastic. I, I'm looking forward to reviewing certainly One Foot Nail Girl. I'd love to have you on again if you would like to. Um, but yeah, that would be that'd be great fun to come back again. Fab. Well, um, for those who are listening, thank you very much for um, remaining loyal. Um, if you're new to the uh, show, please consider going back to series one, episode one. It was just me for a couple of series, very challenging, but now I've got fans that like to come on the show of the One Foot in the Grave. It does make things a lot easier, so I hope it's got better for you. So please leave a review if you haven't done so already. Um, Just helps with the show becoming more searchable, Uh, helps with the algorithms, as they say. So you can find me at One Foot in the Pod on Twitter, and you can email the show onefootinthepodcast at gmail.com. I'm quite active on the Facebook groups. There's a couple of really good One Foot in the Grave tribute pages. Um, So check out that as well. Thank you very much for listening. And I shall be back next week for the final episode. Can't believe we're getting to the final episode of the series already. The worst horror of all. Okay, take care. Thank you very much. Cheers, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One Foot in the Grave.